This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Uchenna Anani. She is an assistant professor of pediatrics and specialty trained in neonatology. In addition to her clinical practice, she also works in the medical ethics realm, and she is core faculty at the Center for Biomedical Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Anani was also one of my classmates at Howard University College of Medicine. So, so good to have you on the show and connect and see what you've been up to. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I've been a huge fan of the podcast. I'm glad to have an opportunity to speak. So thank you so much. So Dr. Anani, when did you get interested in medicine? So that's a great question. Um, My initial exposure to medicine was actually through my mother. Um, She is a neonatal nurse still practicing. Oh, wow. Has been practicing for about 30 plus years now. And she is the reason why I'm interested in medicine and more specifically interested in neonatology. So kind of throughout my grade school, high school education, I was drawn to sciences, biology, um, anatomy and physiology. And I actually knew I wanted to be a neonatologist before I really realized I had to be a pediatrician first before (laughs) (laughs) becoming a neonatologist. So once I figured that part out, I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's completely fine. (laughs) But um, my exposure to our interests stems from my mother. Wow. And what part of the country did you grow up in? So I grew up in Alabama. My parents are from Nigeria. So I am a children, a child of um, immigrant Nigerian parents. And so I was raised within the Nigerian culture, um, but also within the American culture as well. And so we grew up in a household that focused a lot on education and working hard and really aspiring to achieve your dreams. So I accredit my success and all that I am to my parents. And your journey kind of, you know, after or after high school, rather, your journey kicked off. You went to Howard University mm-hmm. for uh, undergrad, correct? I did. I did. What was your experience like in uh, D.C., Chocolate City? I loved it. Honestly, I, when I decided that I wanted to go to Howard for college, I really was looking for an institution where I could really explore Black diaspora and culture. Mm-hmm. I really, and I was really drawn to Howard for that reason. Another reason is... Um, Howard has a accelerated uh, BSMD program, basically a pipeline from your bachelor's straight into medical school and actually is an accelerated program. So it's six years. So you would actually do 
two years of undergraduate and then go directly into medical school. The first two Oof. years, I know, right? <laughs> the first two years <laughs> count towards your bachelor's. So you achieve a bachelor's and then you obviously complete medical school and get your MD. So I, again, I was a very determined individual. I really knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a doctor. And so um, I was very interested in that program when I heard about it. And when I was accepted, I said, this is great. I can go to a wonderful undergraduate university and also a wonderful medical school. And um, I was I was excited to be accepted into the program. And you finished at Howard in 2012? For medical school, yes, 2012. Medical school. And at that time, did you couples match? We did, yes. Me and my... Let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a... Very interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was stressful at the time, obviously, right? Because you're trying to align your career path with your significant other. So, love, uh, my husband now, he is an emergency medicine physician. So he was applying into emergency medicine, which I believe is still now and at the time a pretty competitive program. Yeah. And so I was applying into pediatrics. So because my program was not net my program interest was not necessarily as competitive. I applied a little bit more broadly to other programs kind of across the Northeast, Midwest, and South. That's the areas that we were interested in looking into. And so uh, I definitely casted a wide net, so to speak. But luckily, it worked out really well. Um, we ended up couples matching in Michigan, um, not at the same mm-hmm. program, but within a few hours of each other. So we were still able to live together, but just commute out to our individual programs. So I matched at University of Michigan, Ann Arbor for pediatrics, and he matched at Central Michigan uh, University in Saginaw. How was your pediatric residency experience? Is everything that you hoped and dreamed? Well, you wanted to be a natologist, but you had to do pediatrics first. How was that uh, program at Michigan? So the program at Michigan is a wonderful program. It's very robust you get to see a a lot in terms of pathophysiology. I, and then also their neonatology program is wonderful as well. So I, I was really pleased with my education and training at University of Michigan. It wasn't a program that I was very familiar with before I applied. I think during my, again, thanks to the couples match, you know, I was trying to make sure I was considering (laughs) all of our options. So I initially had never really considered living in Michigan, but after looking up the program and all that it had to offer, it was really a really great opportunity and kind of fit all the criteria that I was looking for. And so um, we were very pleased to to match um, at Michigan. And while you were there, you know, you had to get ready to apply yet again mm-hmm. to uh, neonatology. So can you kind of break down and define for listeners what is encompassed in the field of neonatology? Yes. So I usually tell individuals, parents particularly, that I am a baby doctor, specifically a baby ICU doctor. (laughs) And so that entails taking care of infants who require intensive care unit, who require the intensive care unit. So that can range from extremely premature infants. We take care of infants as young as 22 weeks gestation, um, which is approximately 18 weeks premature from term being 40 weeks versus a full term infant that may require um, ICU care for lots of chronic medical issues or needs um, from a 
you know, congenital heart disease standpoint or primary lung issues or a gamut of different things. So we see a wide range of, although we're taking care of infants specifically, we see a wide range in terms of pathophysiology and complexity. So I really, I really love my job, obviously. <laughs> I'm biased, but I, I it makes, a, makes a lot of us nervous. Oh sure. man, oh, yeah. Yeah. pediatric anesthesia, it's not my strong suit. I'll, I'll take a month a month and up healthy. Yeah, no. Um, again, uh, loves an ER doc. And he says, every time they have an infant or a, a young baby come into the ED, everyone kind of gets really anxious and nervous. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, I'll take take a baby anytime. Yeah, you can, you can phone, phone a friend. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with that. Adults, I'm like, oh, hold on. Let me, let me figure out that again. So you were then applying into fellowship programs. What did you look for in a neonatology fellowship? So I was looking at a program where I would see a lot of clinical exposure, but also a program where I feel like I could um, explore different academic interests. So one of the things that I think some individuals may not know in regards to applying into a subspecialty pediatric program, whether it be neonatology or pulmonology or whatever, is that a lot of the training that you do is not only clinical, but also exploring your research skills and academic skills as well. And so one of the requirements is that you come out with a scholarly work or, you know, form of uh, productivity, manuscript, something of that nature. And so there's, at least at my program at Vanderbilt, there is a lot of um, structure and time um, placed within the program to ensure that you have the time and framework to be able to conduct your scholarly work and, 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 and do well. So I was really interested in a program that would allow for me to explore both of those realms, clinical and research. And at the time, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of like an academic focus, so to speak. Um, but I came to really be drawn to bioethics and that became a yeah. really great um, area for me that really aligned with a lot of things that I love to do cl- both clinically and also act from an academic standpoint. And so I love what I do and I feel like bioethics just aligns really well with that. And you were able to complete a graduate medical education certificate mm-hmm. in biomedical ethics as you were completing that fellowship? Yes, that is correct. Um, it was a it, it ranges. It's one to two years. It was a two-year program for me, um, one year dedicated to didactics, lectures, um, kind of curricular learning and development, and then secondary year kind of dedicated to more clinical exposure. So you can rotate on the uh, clinical ethics consultation service. You can attend some of the programs that they have within the center, um, and then also just aligned a lot of those goals with some of the clinical um, responsibilities I have as a neonatologist. So a lot of antenatal counseling, so counseling families before delivery in regards to what treatment options you have. And I, another role of mine is I work in what's called the fetal center at Vanderbilt. So it's a multidisciplinary clinic ran by our maternal fetal medicine physicians. And so I serve as one of the neonatal consult well, neonatology consultants. Mm-hmm. And I counsel families prenatally that may have a pregnancy that's complicated by some type of congenital issue or genetic syndrome or a gamut of things. And so I am able to take the opportunity to utilize the skills that I 
learn through the certificate program to counsel and prepare families and how to kind of soundly and ethically approach really complex decision making. So it's, I, I love it. I love, I love that part of my job. So I'm glad that I, I get to do it. Yeah, let, let's dig into that a little bit. So mm-hmm. these are kind of high risk pregnancies and they enter the pipeline through their MFM doc? Yeah. So essentially, we serve as like a tertiary coordinary center for um, obstetrics and neonatology, respectively. And so other surrounding OB practices, if there is a concern regarding a pregnancy that warrants a higher level of care, perinatal care, they're referred into the clinic. So usually a lot of the moms that we'll see are seen after their initial kind of anatomy survey ultrasound, which is anywhere between 18 to 20 weeks or so. Okay. And so a lot of the moms are entering midway in their second trimester, may have just realized that they have a diagnosis that they were not prepared to deal with. And so they are, they're going through to be very honest, they're going through a pretty traumatic experience, right? You you yeah. have this set mindset of my pregnancy is going to go a certain way. You have these like aspirations, these goals, and to, then to receive some, you know, potentially devastating news about the change in that trajectory, it's it's hard. And so a lot of families are are coping with that change alone, yet as well as coping with the idea of, okay, my child has this diagnosis. How do I now deal with that? And how do I be a parent to them in this situation? So um, I am empathetic to families that are dealing with that. And I do my best to make sure that I am providing not only the, the information and counseling that they need to help kind of prepare as they move forward in that, in that journey, but also know that they are supported by me as well, I, that we are supporting them as well and not just the, the pregnancy and, and their child. Absolutely. I think one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is interacting with different specialists because, you know, we're, we're kind of siloed and we're used to mm-hmm. just dealing with our one thing. I just put people to sleep, wake them up, a little more complicated <laughs> than that. I, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> I work with um, anesthesiologists all the time yeah. in the delivery room. So we appreciate you guys a lot. <laughs> but, but realizing like, you know, how complex this is and, and what these patients are going through at these these times, something we can all kind of take away from and make sure we're like showing grace and 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 that extra level of care. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So Dr. Anani, what is your practice like? Because you, you're, I can't keep track. You're, you're all over the place. I know, right? I think uh, <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out myself, actually. <laughs> So I work in an academic center. So I do have time that's dedicated to clinical work. So that clinical work is uh, focused on working in the actual NICU, where I round and take care of patients and do medical procedures and and all that. Um, But then also do some of my clinical time in the fetal center. So doing antenatal counseling for families. So that's the kind of the bulk of what my role is. I, about 80% is dedicated to my clinical time, and then 20% is dedicated to kind of scholarly work and academic work. And, and within that space, I do some teaching, some education, both medical school and GME, so resident and fellow mm-hmm. um, teaching. And then uh, the rest of that time, I do scholarly work in bioethics. So I really do a lot of qualitative research on interactions between uh, families and physicians and medical teams surrounding different 
areas of treatment decision making, whether it be uh, peri-viability, antenatal counseling, dynamics surrounding um, enrollment and research for clinical trials, or um, even really treatment decision making surrounding an uncertain diagnosis. So that's kind of the range and gamut of what I do from a bioethics research standpoint. And then I also do a little bit of overlap on bioethics and health equity and how do we intertwine uh-huh. those those two themes as well. That's that's a full plate mm-hmm. in addition to having a, a dual doctor family. Yeah. That's a it's a, it's a lot. I'm sure you manage it well. When it comes to your time in the NICU, so I've always been surprised by how ridiculously large NICUs are. Mm-hmm. Like how big is the NICU that you work in? <laughs> or multiple NICUs, I'm sure, probably. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring that up because we were just talking about that as a division, how our unit has grown. So when I first started off as a fellow, that was in 2015, I would say our average census, you know, was maybe around like 80, maybe 90, 90. And I think we kind of would put like 90 bed unit. And the Children's Hospital has grown and it's wonderful. Um, our, you know, bed number has increased to about 120, uh-huh. roughly somewhere around that space. So um, we have a lot of patients in the NICU. Obviously not every bed is filled, but we have the capacity to take care of up to probably 120 babies and probably have at some point. <laughs> As a fellow, how many babies would you be responsible for? So it depends. Um, usually when during the daytime, you have a dedicated team. So we have X amount of patients per team. So that average is somewhere, somewhere around 20 or so babies. When you're on call at night, um, it's a little different. So there was a fellow that's on over in our main children's hospital. And so that would constitute 70 plus babies. And then we have another NICU that's in the delivery hospital in the adult side. And that was probably around 20 um, beds or babies. And so that was there was another fellow that would cover on that side. And would you mind breaking down, like, say a 24-week preemies mm-hmm. delivered, what kind of care do you provide? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so um, there are a lot of different things that we do to provide care for a 24-week premature infant. One of the first things that we try to be mindful of is making sure that the baby stays warm. So mm-hmm. we'll actually raise the temperature in the delivery room, particularly if it's in the surge, in the OR, um, we know that those rooms can be tend to be cold, so we'll actually raise the temperature in the room to make sure that the baby stays warm, and then also place them in like a plastic covering to ensure that they stay warm. Um, just like every other baby that you might see on on TV, you know, we try to dry off the baby and keep make sure they're warm and make sure that they cry and they pink up. Premature babies at 24 weeks may not necessarily pink up, may not necessarily cry, so we have to provide them with. Uh, breathing or respiratory support. So that can range from what we call CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, or in some cases providing or placing a a breathing tube or an endotracheal tube intubation and uh, providing mechanical ventilation. So that's not uncommon as well. So, um, and that's all part of the spectrum of taking care of a premature infant. We know that if they're small and premature, then their organ development is premature as well, and that includes their lungs. And so um, we, our technology has improved drastically over the last 
years, uh, several years, probably decades really. And so we have a lot of modalities to help ventilate and provide oxygen and support a premature infant's physiology. Um, it's not perfect, obviously. There are still limitations. And there's a lot of discussion in regards to how premature can we how premature can we actually provide, well, how would I phrase this? At what point um, have are we able to provide the the care that we can for premature infants? So for instance, there's a lot of discussions regarding management of a 22-weeker or a 23-weeker or a 24-weeker. And we kind of put this, we call that um, kind of age range or extremely premature infants or peri-viability. I, I think sometimes that kind of gives a negative connotation. But essentially, our extremely premature infants, how are we able to provide the basic needs and care for an infant at that age? And what does that look like? And is every 22-weeker going to act the same? Is every 24-weeker going to act the same? And obviously, there's a wide range in terms of how um, infants may respond to the medical management that we have and the capabilities that we have. And so we when we counsel families, we, we talk with them about what that range may look like. And obviously having very serious conversations in terms of what their goals of care and what's most important to them and what is most valuable for them, obviously help us to guide what treatment decisions and options are, are kind of in the best interest for the family and their baby. So it's definitely a, just very, very emotionally challenging for all, yeah. I would say for all stakeholders involved, but obviously more so for the family. So, yeah. but we, we do our best to guide them through it. And, and that makes sense why your field dovetails so well with your work in medical ethics. And as part of that, you teach medical students and residents. What are some of the key takeaways that you want students rotating with you to take to, to learn when it comes to ethical considerations of some of these cases? Um, not every counseling session or conversation is the same, right? I think we have certain guiding principles, certain kind of outlines in terms of what we do when we go into a conversation or a counseling session with a family, but recognizing that there's fluidity in that and adapting your conversation to the needs of the family um, I think we talk a lot about within ethics about engaging in what's called shared decision making. So where you're yeah. equally um, providing the information and kind of mutually together the medical team and the family or the parents in terms of the decision. But it's often not really shared, so to speak. Right. I think there right. are a lot of families that come into this space and don't even know what to ask or what's available or what, what to do. And so. I, I think of it more of individualized or personalized where I'm really here to just meet you where you are and provide the, provide you with the information and care that you need. And so I guess one takeaway is to embrace that fluidity and just, and, and to really connect and understand the narrative of your family. On that note, my other takeaway is be empathetic. You know, I think sometimes mm. we, we see this every day. So we're just so used to it. Like this is yeah. just part of our, our routine, like work, environment, but this is not something that these families are used to. And it, we have to pause and, and, and truly take in the fact that this is painful and traumatic. And, uh, you know, they're going through a lot of different emotions and we really need to be empathetic. And 
I guess for me, one of the things about healthcare that I think is so interesting is that even as someone who works in healthcare, I know that I myself am going to require health care or caregiving from someone at some point in my life. Yeah. And so I, I know for me, I would want someone who really would provide me comfort and empathy when I needed it the most. And so I feel like I take that mindset and I try to implement that to the best of my ability each and every day when I'm talking to a family about a scenario or, or engaging with just routine discussions about routine care in the NICU, not trying to take it for granted that this is just routine. Like, why are we going through this discussion? This is because they don't, they don't understand it. They've never seen it and, and they're, they're coping and I, I need to be empathetic to that. And so that's something I really stress to my, to my trainees a lot in terms of education and, and counseling. You yeah. need to be empathetic. It's fantastic. I know, you know, during training, there's standardized exams, there's all this other stuff you're trying to deal with. And mm-hmm. every day now, like I appreciate those softer skills of medicine and like the conversations that you have to have and, and those things you, you may not usually get in uh, medical education, but thankfully you're there to teach that. So Dr. Anani, as we, as we start to wrap up, let's end on some positives. What are some of the good things that you see in the, in the NICU? Um, so one of the, positives I love to see is when a family comes and visits um, after mm. they've been discharged. Um, usually they're, you know, seeing a, one of their subspecialists for a follow-up appointment and they're, they will do a drive-by and say hello to some of the uh-huh. NICU nurses that took care of them and the doctors and I had this one mom, <laughs> I saw her and I just gave her this big hug. I was like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> it was amazing. And honestly, the thank yous, you know, it's a we recognize it's a it's a hard job to work in an ICU setting and to also work in a setting where families are going through going through a lot. And it's really nice to just see the positive outcomes for families to come and visit just briefly <laughs> and to um, obviously adhering to COVID precautions and rules <laughs> and um, just the thank yous, the thank you cards. So it's it's great. It makes it worthwhile for sure. Well, Dr. Uchenna Anani, thank you so much for joining us at Black Doctors Podcast. Thank you for sharing your incredible specialty of neonatology. And folks, thanks for tuning in because representation matters. Thank you. I appreciate it. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. If you enjoy listening, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. We are a small team and can use all the help we can get. You can reach us at the Black Doctors Podcast on Instagram or at Stephen Bradley MD on Twitter or Instagram. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast because representation matters.